Described as the worst massacre that Cape Town and the country had ever seen, in 2003, nine innocent men lost their lives in a brutal and heart-wrenching manner. The police would arrive at the unsuspecting Seapoint property to find not only the radio blasting the lyrics, Life is too short to have sorrow. You may be here today and gone tomorrow. But also the inside of their home at 7 Graham Road that resembled a bloodbath. Copious amounts of blood pooled on the floors, splattered the walls and even the ceilings. The area would later be described by a victim's family as having the stench of petrol, blood and death hanging in the air. And over the months to follow as the events of the evening would transpire, friends, family and onlookers would be left with more questions than answers. This is the gut-wrenching case of the Sizzlers Massacre. Hello and welcome to Murder and Mayhem, a South African true crime podcast hosted by me, Monsoon. I'm a mental health professional, so Murder and Mayhem, a South African true crime podcast, explores real-life crimes occurring within South Africa from a psychological viewpoint. Every week, a new case is examined and we delve headfirst into the motives that drive people to do what they do. Join me weekly on a journey into the minds behind the madness as we traverse murder, mayhem, and much more. Before I jump into the disclaimer, this month, like last year, I am celebrating International Pride Month on the channel. Thus, this month, I will be amplifying the voices and narratives of victims belonging to the LGBTQIA community. Just a quick disclaimer for today's episode. Today's narrative contains material citing graphic descriptions of violence regarding multiple murders. As always, I mean absolutely no disrespect to the victims nor their families. The purpose of this video is to shed further light on the heinous crime that was committed while spreading awareness about the psychological nature of the narrative. This episode has been thoroughly researched by myself and includes where available real-life accounts, footage and images of individuals involved directly in the case. So let's get into it. For this episode and this narrative, we are traveling back in time, 20 years to be precise, to 2003 in the Oceanside Cape Town suburb of Seapoint. Up until the end of apartheid, it was classed historically as a whites-only area. Prior to this, though, many subsections of the area were gaining a reputation for being gay pickup spots, particularly for white males. Seapoint was also becoming an area that was frequented by male prostitutes. As apartheid came to an end, with more diversity and urbanization, the area also found itself heavily populated by a great deal of drug dealers and sex workers. The gang activity in the suburb saw a massive spike during this time, with many referring to Seapoint as Munnenberg by the sea. For those of you who are not aware, Munnenberg is a very gang-riddled area within Cape Town. The two main gangs in the area at the time were the Americans and the 28s. In the current day though, this is not necessarily still the case, as the area is lesser known for crime and more known for tourism, cycling and running on the promenade, and picturesque ocean views. But but as I mentioned, today we're not talking about current day affairs. As Cape Town was fast becoming known as the gay capital of the country, various same-sex brothels, bars and clubs began to pop up. 
One of the more established ones, though, was Sizzlers, a massage parlor in Seapoint dating back to 1997, a parlor that was known for their good-looking young men. According to those who worked there, although the hours were long, it often paid well. Each employee was expected to see around five clients a day, and when they were not working, they were on standby. All the employees also worked under pseudonyms, with only their age, color of their hair, eyes, and build being mentioned in newspaper adverts. One young man in particular would later state to media that he was servicing around 95 clients a month and earning 12,000 rand, which back then was a good amount of money. But of course, there is always a dark side to the temptation of a lucrative income. The obvious was the allure of drugs that captured almost all of the young men who worked there. Others who frequented the location as clients would later state that the living conditions amounted to nothing more than modern slavery. And some would even go on to accuse the man who ran the parlor as exploiting the vulnerable. Although many stated that this man was a kind and fair boss, only charging the young men 200 rand to stay in the dormitories on site and helping those who had no other options, others still believed that he was exploitative. But given the fact that these accounts are all hearsay and he's not here to speak for himself or make a statement, this is neither the time nor place for that discussion. In Sizzlers, 90% of the customer base were married men and Afrikaans speaking. Its regular clients included older men up to their 60s as well as young men who wanted to have their first homosexual experience. Regular visitors included tourists, rich businessmen, well-known rugby players, academics, and even actors. The clientele stood in stark contrast to the employees, of which many were young men in their 20s, some even younger. Many of these men came from rural areas or desperate situations, some with heartbreaking stories to tell. But I'm sure you'll realize from the outside that was difficult to see. And just like these young men, from the outside, the house on 7 Graham Road looked like any other. A white wall with picket fencing, a frangipani tree with white flowers in bloom, and hibiscus showering patches of red along the pathway. Now that you're familiar, at least a little bit, with our setting, this is where our story truly begins. The year is 2003. The month is January and the day is the 20th. The Sizzlers boys, as they were known, had taken the day off, not seeing any clients, spring cleaning the home, and just generally taking it easy. Only one client, after being given the green light by Eric, the owner of Sizzlers, was allowed into the property. The rest of the group were gathered by the television, watching the Broken Hearts Club on a VHS tape. Yes, This was 2003 after all, and VHS tapes were still a thing. The day was fairly unremarkable, but later that evening, around midnight, two men who had called in earlier to make an appointment would show up. These men were new customers, they were not regulars. They were then let into the property, and that's when everything went downhill. As soon as the pair entered the property, they were led to a back studio. Standard procedure at Sizzlers would have the young men then present themselves to the clients for the clients to make the choice. Before that could happen though, both men approached the employee, pulled out their guns and declared that they were robbing the place. These men then joined the rest of the individuals in the house where they then proceeded to ask Eric, the owner, for all the money that he had. 
Eric had then opened the safe and given them the 2,000 rand that was in it. The eight men, seven employees and the owner then had their hands bound behind their backs with nylon rope and had socks placed in their mouths before they were taped shut. Each man was then told to lay on his stomach and they were placed in almost a horseshoe position. One man, however, Quentin, refused to lie in that manner and so he was allowed to lie on his back. At this point, I will differentiate between the men by referring to the larger of the men as man A and the smaller of the men as man B. Man B then stayed to watch the hostages as man A continued to search the house. At some point during this, the client from earlier, remember him, as well as his masseuse, Sergio, walked in on everything that was going on completely unaware. They were then taken to an adjacent room and received the same treatment as the other young men. After finding another safe in a different room and taking around 7,000 rand from it, the man who seemed to be in charge, Man A, was still convinced that there was far more money on the property. I'll explain a little bit later why he was inclined to believe this. In between this, he was pacing nervously up and down the passageway on a phone call, seemingly trying to arrange transport of some kind. Whilst he was away, Man B consistently and repeatedly assured all the victims that they would not be killed. However, following the search, the real torture began. At the insistence of Man A, who still believed there was more money on the property, the two began to instigate scare tactics, namely stabbing and slicing the throats of the male victims. The men, now obviously even more terrified, began to fight back against their restraints. Man B had his own knife with him, a non-serrated knife, whereas Man A took a sharp steak knife from the kitchen. The men, now even more terrified, began to fight back against their restraints. Although both men were slicing at their victims, Man A was causing far more deeper and intense wounds than his partner. At one point, Eric managed to loosen his restraints and attempted to break loose, but he was kicked to the ground and stabbed again. As if the flesh wounds that these two men had inflicted were not sufficient, petrol was then poured over all the men lying on the ground, and they were told, You have five minutes before we will light you all up. One cannot even begin to imagine the pure terror that was going through the minds of these men. Trapped, tortured, and now threatened with being burnt alive. At this point, the perpetrators had been in the home for over two hours. As the men countless times pleaded with their attackers and were told that they would not be killed, I'm sure that many realized that this was just a lie. As the minutes progressed, the client, Gregory, got free of his restraints, his nylon ropes, and he ran and attacked Man A. Man B, however, then pulled him off Man A and struck Gregory in the head with his gun. The perpetrators would later state that it was during the scuffle that the first shot was fired. It was clear that in that moment, something changed. Man A began to shoot at point-blank range, each of the men lying on the ground, starting from one side. Man B followed suit, starting from the other side. 
Quentin, who was lying on his back this entire time, watched all of this happen and made direct eye contact with the perpetrators as not one but two bullets were fired into his head. When he finally regained consciousness, the men were gone. His jaw was shattered and hanging from his face. The bodies of the very same men he had been watching a movie with just hours earlier surrounded him. Although the perpetrators had stated they were going to lock them inside the house, all the doors to the home were left open. Quinton, knowing something was wrong with his face but not remembering exactly what, managed to get up and walked to the bathroom noticing more than anything the trail of blood on the ground. The next moments were a blur, but he knew that he needed to find help, and so he made his way out of the house about 200 meters up the road to the local garage. All that kept going through his mind was that he wanted to live, and he needed to get somewhere safe. He would cross two lanes of traffic before he reached the garage. He stumbled inside and he fell down. At this point in time, it was around quarter past three in the morning. Actually, one of the individuals working at the filling station, Eunice Kani, thought that the man she saw before her was drunk as he was stumbling around. It was only when he got closer that she saw the blood flowing from his face. Inside the petrol station, Quentin collapsed after requesting assistance. Eunice and a colleague then stopped a police patrol car who called the paramedics. When Quentin awoke again, a police officer and paramedic were standing over him. As fate would have it, at just that time, a regular client, Mark, was visiting Seven Graham Road and stumbled upon the horrific scene. He too ran on foot to get help at the local petrol station. He arrived just in time to see the lights from a police car as well as a man on the ground repeatedly saying that he did not want to die. Mark then explained the situation to the police and asked them to accompany him back to the house. The police would arrive at a scene in Graham Road that many would never forget, like something out of a pure horror movie, as the radio music that was left on cut through the otherwise silent night the home on Seven Graham Road resembled a bloodbath. Copious amounts of blood pooled on the floors, splattered the walls and even the ceilings. The area was described as having the stench of blood, petrol and death hanging in the air. Upon arrival, three men terribly wounded were crawling around on the wooden floor of a room in the house. The bodies of five other deceased men were found in the main bedroom and the body of a sixth was found in an adjacent room. The three injured men and Quinton were rushed to Grotteskia Hospital to receive urgent medical attention. Meanwhile, the disturbing chain of events was slowly becoming apparent to all of those who were entering the property. Inside the home, heavy curtains covered the windows. A room was ransacked with items of clothing and teddy bears littering the floor. Another room housed multiple television sets and a collection of VHS tapes with adult-rated photographs of men on the walls. And over so many items in the property copious amounts of blood. A few hours later, in the midst of all the chaos, at around 9.30 in the morning, a domestic worker arrived. Breaking down after seeing the mayhem at the home, she was comforted by police and escorted from the property. She kept asking over and over, where's Eric? Where's Eric? 
The police by that time had secured the area, not allowing any further individuals into the property. They were also conducting interviews with some of the surrounding neighbours, and soon they were alerted to an old white BMW. That was seen in the area shortly after gunshots were heard. Along with that spotting, inside the vehicle, apparently four men had been spotted. The descriptions that were initially offered allegedly went something along these lines. One of the suspects had a tattoo of a curled-up snake on his upper left arm and the words Fast Gun on his right wrist, allegedly the mark of a local gang. The Fast Guns is a gang known in Johannesburg. Although not based predominantly in Cape Town, the Fast Guns are believed to have carried out hits for the Americans in the past as a way of confusing local police. This man allegedly had reddish hair, probably bleached, and he had a goatee beard. The second man was described as a thin man with a fair complexion and a habit of sniffing. The third suspect was described as tall, well-built, with a shaven head, possibly a bodybuilder, whereas the fourth was only described as being well-built. Ten days later, however, only two identicates would be shared. So where exactly the other two men disappeared to in this entire equation? Well, I'm not even sure of that. But I'm getting ahead of myself. The police, in the meantime, while searching for these alleged perpetrators, were also trying to discover the identities of the victims. All of the employees of Sizzlers were known by their pseudonyms. Many were not originally from Cape Town, and as it would turn out, most of the families were not aware of their loved one's occupation in the city. Initially, four of the victims were identified by their ID books, whereas another three were identified by family members who had seen the news. As the events that occurred became public knowledge and were broadcast through the media, absolute shock reverberated through the Seapoint community. Bouquets of flowers and letters were stuffed into the gate of Seven Graham Road as police guarded the entrance to the home. Police officers were also dispatched to the hospital to watch over the remaining survivors too. Over the hours and days following the massacre, three of the four surviving men passed away. One of them was Eric, the owner of Sizzlers. The only survivor who was in a stable condition was Quinton, the man who had made it to the petrol station. But who exactly was he and who were the other victims? So often in true crime podcasts and episodes, there is so much of emphasis placed on the perpetrators that the victims are often an afterthought. For the next few moments, I would like to introduce you to all the victims of the Sizzlers massacre so that their stories may not be forgotten too. Quentin Taylor, who would be the sole survivor, was just 22 years old. Prior to Cape Town, he had been living in Neisner, a picturesque coastline little town just under 450 kilometers from Cape Town. He, like some of the other victims, had experienced a difficult childhood, but at the age of 14, he would meet the family who would adopt him just three years later. As a young man though, he went through his fair share of trauma and darkness, and so his friends had told him about a transformation farm just outside of Neisner in an area known as Rienendal. He would go on to live and camp there for a period of 10 months. It was a tough life though and eventually he decided to move to a bigger city, to Cape Town, so that he could find work and make a new life there. However, things in Cape Town were far harder than he expected and he struggled to find employment. 
With no communication with his parents, no work and no way to get back to Neisner, he felt hopeless. That was until one day he was approached by Eric, the owner of the Sizzler's Misuse Bar in Seven Graham Road. Eric had seen the turmoil behind Quentin's eyes and he had offered him assistance. Through their subsequent conversation, a place to stay and a way to earn an income was discussed. And so, Quentin took the path that would lead him just two short weeks later to the tragedy that would send shockwaves through the city. But although he was the only survivor, he was not the only victim. Eric, the owner of Sizzlers, was better known to his family and personal friends as Aubrey John Utrar. The 47-year-old man was said to be an incredibly loving, warm and welcoming figure. He started Sizzlers not only as a way to generate revenue, as any business does, but also as a way to provide a space for the gay community that was growing and connecting with one another. His space was known as a place of safety for all of those who entered. Although his family were aware of what he did and they were not happy about it, they did not allow that to cause a rift between them. Aubrey was also vocal in his fight for the safety of citizens as well as his criticisms of the government and their failings. Many of the young men who worked for him and knew him spoke highly of him. There were, however, those who would later accuse him of preying upon the desperate and vulnerable. One such individual was perhaps Sergio de Castro. Sergio, who lived in the East Rand in Gauteng, had a difficult childhood, with his mother leaving home when he was only three years old. His father, just a few years later, would pass away when he was only six years old. He ended up moving back and forth with relatives who didn't necessarily want to keep him until he was old enough to figure out his own way. And he moved to Cape Town in 2000. At this point, he was not in regular contact with his stepmother or his half-brother. He ended up taking the job at Sizzlers because he had a debt of 13,000 rand that he was trying to pay off. He owed money to a few places, including a computer college, where he was doing a course in website development. That line of work was his ultimate goal. He was known as a smart young man with a variety of interests, playing the flute and guitar as well as learning to speak Hebrew. For two and a half years prior to his murder, he had also taken to singing in the church choir at St. Mary's Catholic Church. As I mentioned, he had started working at Sizzlers to pay off his debts in 2002, but he could not handle the work and so he had left. He had then started working on a fishing boat where he packed fish at the harbour. However, he returned to Sizzlers towards the end of the year and he had only been working there for two short months again before his life would come to a tragic end. Another end that came way too soon was that of Stephanus Fannis Foschia. Described as a quiet boy and a nice kid, known as Ryan to those he worked with, Farnes was from the small town of Tiernison. As an only child who was adopted by his family, his father would later characterize him as polite, responsible, and good-natured. He had finished grade 10 in Tiernison High School before he had moved to Cape Town to make his way in the world. He had told his family that he had a job there, but he did not elaborate exactly what it was. Even though he had told others, including Eric, that he was older, Farnes was only 17 years old at the time of his murder. Every day at 6am, he would call his parents, and so when Monday morning came without a phone call, they knew something was wrong. His father would later state that his son hated violence, but that is how he died, violently. After the news broke, his father had taken his body home to the Free State in his bucky. 
Another victim who was not from Cape Town was 20-year-old Travis Reed, who was from Kempton Park in Johannesburg. According to his parents, he had a drug problem and he had been a male prostitute using the pseudonym Maximilian for a few years. His addiction had also given way to many behavioral issues, including compulsive lying. His parents, however, remained convinced that he was not killed due to his sexuality, but rather due to dirty money, gambling and drugs. Although his parents were unaware of how long he had been working at Sizzlers due to his tendency to be vague with the truth, they did know that he had been in Cape Town for the last two years. They had wanted to assist him to leave that life, but he was attracted to the allure of the big money he earned, which allowed him to buy new clothes and even 3,000 rand leather boots. And for many, the allure of relatively easy money was perhaps what captured them. Another victim whose family to this day remain instrumental in continuing the fight for justice was 22-year-old Warren Fisser. He was a computer engineer who was described as being creative and compassionate, coming from a Christian home. His sister would later recount how he would play Barbies and dollies with her when she was younger. Warren had lived in the family home right up until one month before the massacre. His mother believed that he was lured to the prostitution ring via the internet, and she had voiced her thoughts with him that she believed he was engaged in the sex industry, which he vehemently denied. Warren spoke to his mother only hours before the attack, and she had implored him to please leave his line of work. He, however, had only responded to ask her why she did not trust him. His mother would discover the heartbreaking news after a power outage had occurred in their Takai home. This meant that when the power came back, the television had switched on automatically at an extremely high volume. As she had woken up to switch it off, it happened to be on a news channel, showcasing the Graham Road home and detailing what had happened. Immediately, in her gut, she knew that Warren was one of the victims. Although he would survive several hours after the attack, he would later succumb to his injuries in hospital. Unfortunately, not much is known about the next victim, Marius Mayer, who was 21 years old at the time of the murders. He was originally from Barclay West, which is a small town in the Northern Cape province. Marius was also taken to Grotescuur Hospital after the attack, but died there later the same day. The next victim, Johan Meyer, was 20 years old at the time of his death. Described as a friendly people's person, he was from a town near Vereniging in Gauteng. He had made the move to Cape Town two years prior in search of financial success. He had been working at a casting agency in 2002, but in November he had quit. His parents, although aware that he was homosexual, did not know that he had been working for Sizzlers. Timothy Greg Boyd was the last victim to be identified. He was 29 years old and had moved to Cape Town in September of 2001. He previously lived in Johannesburg, where he had been working in the sex industry to earn a living. He struggled to find direction, but he always treated those around him well, especially the women in his life. He identified as heterosexual and his dream was to one day be a father. His dreams were halted, however, when his girlfriend broke up with him after discovering that he was working at a gay massage parlor, The Barracks, in Seapoint. And then, ironically, that parlor did not appreciate the fact that he had a girlfriend, and so they fired him. Which is how, single and unemployed, he ended up at Sizzlers, getting a job there just a month and a half before the massacre. The individuals I've mentioned up until this point were either the employees or the owner of the establishment. 
But of course, there was also one client there that day, and he is the last victim I will be discussing. Gregory Seymour Berghaus, who was 43 years old, was a prop and antique collector and was described as being bright, very generous and kind. He was also creative and artistic and he had two degrees which he worked incredibly hard for. Prior to moving back to Cape Town, he had been living and working in New York for 15 years. Everyone remembered him as someone who accepted people for who they were, and he was described by his mother as being someone with an incisive mind and a wonderful sense of humor, who abhorred violence. It was actually Gregory's family who would offer a 100,000 rand reward for any information that would lead to the arrest and conviction of the killers. Answers would come along soon enough though. Not as a result of the reward, but rather as a result of the identikits and some assistance that Quentin would give. So remember I briefly mentioned identikits earlier? Well, let me elaborate. The identicates released were of a white male in his late 20s or early 30s with blonde hair combed to the back, well-built with a goatee. The second identicate was of a well-built colored male, light in complexion, also appearing to be in his late 20s or early 30s with black hair. In the beginning of February, the sole survivor of the massacre, Quentin, was released from hospital and placed into a safe house. His identity was still kept under wraps though from the public as he was in the witness protection program. Because, of course, remember, all these weeks later, the killers were still on the loose. His release came shortly after he had had surgery to remove the bullets in his head. It was later believed that because he faced his attackers and the bullets went from the front to the back of his head, they had somehow miraculously not penetrated vital areas. The pathologist believed that this was either due to the individual with the gun wavering slightly which deflected the shot, or Quentin anticipated the impact slightly turning his head. He would still end up with significant injuries though, needing jaw reconstructive surgery and losing all hearing in his left ear due to the gunshot to the left temple. The second gunshot entered the top of his head above the hairline and passed between the brain and skull before coming out the right hand side of his neck. The other men who each received a bullet to the head would suffer a far crueler fate though, perhaps due to the fact that they were face down when they were shot. Many of the men were barefoot and gagged, with tape still across their mouths when they were brought into the morgue. According to the pathologist, due to the gunshot wounds to the head, it fractured the base of the skull. The force of the gunshot wound also led to the blood entering the back of the throat, with the victims very likely choking on their own blood. Although there were wounds on the throat of each man, none of them penetrated to the back of the throat as some headlines and articles had incorrectly stated. What was known for sure though is that these men had endured a torturous few hours before eventually passing on. The true horror of their endings fueled the public's anger. There were also so many theories floating around after the massacre. From the four white males who were spotted, to allegedly talk of the crime being committed by eight colored men from a local gang, the theories spread like wildfire. But the fact that there was a sole survivor who was witness to everything made all the difference. Quinton would also go on to identify one of the perpetrators from a collection of mugshots. This, however, was only after his father had asked the police if they had taken him to see mugshot albums, to which they of course hadn't. That's South Africa for you. 
The man that he would then point out at the albums at the Seapoint police station had been arrested several years prior after taking his brother's vehicle without his permission. Although the man's face had changed slightly over the years, Quentin would later remark that he would recognize his eyes anywhere. He was the same man who had slit his throat. He was Man B. On the 13th of February, to the relief of so many, two men were finally arrested. A 42-year-old coloured male, Man B, was arrested in Mitchell's plane at 5am. After being questioned by the investigative team, he made his confession in front of a magistrate. On further information provided by him, a 26-year-old white male, Man A, was arrested at the Vienna waterfront at 8.15 in the evening. That suspect actually lived in Seapoint, right opposite Sizzler. Shortly after his arrest, he too made a full confession in front of a Cape Town magistrate. Upon the arrest being made, with the identity of the individuals still being withheld, the police issued the following statement. Perhaps more than anything, we would like to thank and congratulate the lesbian and gay community who united at a time of difficulty, both to assist the police and to assist families of the victims who were in need of support. The arrested individuals' identities were kept out of the media until the point where an identity parade could be conducted. As the men would later appear at the Cape Town Magistrates Court, they were emotionless initially as the charges were read to them. Both would also later watch the incredibly disturbing and graphic police footage with no reaction other than mild interest. As the court hearings would progress though, Man B would nervously clutch his hands together whilst Man A showed pure indifference. Both men faced nine counts of murder, one of attempted murder, one of robbery with aggravating circumstances, and one of illegal possession of a gun and ammunition. They were then both remanded to the Goodwood prison as the case was postponed and they were held in protective custody after receiving death threats. After the identity parade was postponed yet again due to now not being able to find individuals who resembled Man A, it finally proceeded. It was one of the largest lineups with 24 individuals facing the sole survivor Quinton from behind a one-way glass. Even the brother of one of the accused was brought in. Without any delay, Quinton was able to identify both of the perpetrators. Remember, he had been on his back the entire time watching these two carry out their rampage and as he would later state to the media he would never forget their faces. Once the parade had been conducted and their identities had been confirmed the perpetrators were made known to the public and it is now that I will make them known to you too albeit briefly as we will be diving into their histories soon enough. Let us meet the men behind the monstrous acts. Man A was 26-year-old Adam Roy Vos, and Man B was 43-year-old Trevor Basil Tice. The court case would suffer multiple delays due to legal counsel being sought, along with Trevor experiencing health issues due to a heart condition. Due to the nature of the crime, both men would later be assessed via psychiatric assessment and found fit to stand trial. The trial, however, which was due to start in February, would once again be postponed multiple times, including once due to the legal counsel withdrawing representation of Trevor as he had changed his story so often it was apparently difficult for his lawyer to even defend him. And then in March of 2004, both men decided to simply blame each other for the crime. 
which resulted in the judge noting a plea of not guilty for each individual. The following information are additions to the chain of events that I've already explained. However, this information is compiled from the statements of the accused. And so, of course, you'll easily be able to see the differences in terms of their versions of events. Adam's statement. According to Adam, it was at his place of work in a restaurant in Seapoint where he'd come across an individual known as Corbus or David. This man had worked as a male escort at a misuse parlor in Seapoint, better known as Sizzlers. The two would often see one another and would later engage in an intoxicated conversation one night in 2002 after Corbus slash David had been fired. During this conversation, he would tell Adam that there were large amounts of cash that were kept on the premises. And by large, he meant like 150 to 200,000 rand. Trevor, the other accused and Adam's friend, was sitting nearby and heard this entire narrative. But nothing else had come of that conversation. Well, right then that is. During October of 2002, Adam had started working at Key 4 in the waterfront. According to him, it was during one evening whilst he was spending some time with Trevor that the topic of Sizzlers was brought up again. And Trevor had apparently mentioned robbing the establishment. Adam, however, apparently laughed it off as a joke. According to Trevor, however, it was Adam that during this conversation had suggested robbing Sizzlers. Adam had then stuck to it and in the days that followed, he had asked Trevor if he could get his hands on weapons. And Trevor, well, apparently he had just played along. The turning point for Trevor, however, was when his younger girlfriend, who was around 20 years old, about half his age at the time, had broken up with him allegedly for a woman. He had then tried to get her back, but had failed miserably. And so one evening, he had taken his gun and his brother's gun, and he had sent Adam a message to tell him he was ready. On the 19th of January 2003, Trevor had told Adam that he was serious about robbing Sizzlers, and after they had met up, he showed him the pistol he had. Trevor had wanted to go early on in the evening to execute their plan, but Adam already had plans, he was going to Lamed, a local clubbing spot. Later that evening, Trevor had got in contact with him and picked him up, bringing two balaclava and two firearms with him. Adam had thus set the scene by contacting Sizzlers and making a midnight appointment for himself and Trevor. Prior to arriving, the pair had obtained two liters of petrol at a nearby garage. They also had nylon rope, surgical gloves, and duct tape with them. Upon arriving at the property, they had put on their gloves before proceeding to enter under the guise of being clients. The rest, well, I've already delved into that tragic chain of events. According to Adam, it was also Trevor's idea to both tie up and cut the victims in order to scare them into giving them more money. According to Trevor, however, Adam was the one who decided to tie up the victim and then gave Trevor the instruction to slit their throats, which he did not want to do. Trevor was scared of Adam, who was not only larger than him, but who had already threatened to tie up any loose ends. Trevor's version of events would be corroborated by Quinton, 
by the way, who would state that Adam was the one who appeared to be in charge. Trevor had remained hesitant even when inflicting wounds on the throats of the victims. His knife was not serrated and the wound was shallow, compared to the deep aggressive cuts that Adam made on the other victims. Trevor would then state that it was Adam who began shooting first, whereas Adam would, I'm sure you guessed it by now, put the blame onto Trevor. It was basically a he said, he said sort of deal. Regardless, the next chain of events had occurred after the two had escaped from the home. After donning their balaclavas and exiting the home, the pair had then drove around aimlessly on the N1, almost reaching Beaufort West. According to Trevor's latest statement, the reason the guns were not found was that he dismantled the two firearms on the way and threw the components piece by piece out of the car window on the N1. The pair then discarded the masks and the gloves used in the attack in Pardonnayland. They then drove to Belleville until the early hours and remained there until daybreak. At that point, Adam had taken a taxi back to Seapoint. Trevor, however, continued to drive around, purchased new clothing which he put on, and then after aimlessly driving, returned home. The owner of the vehicle he had been driving, the white BMW which he rented, collected his vehicle not knowing anything about the Sizzler's crime. It would be almost three weeks later when there was a knock on the door of the home Trevor was in, in the early hours of the day. In his later statement, Trevor would admit that he knew it was the police, as everyone in the house was asleep and he had seen men running along the side of the wall. As the trial progressed, witnesses would come forward, placing both of the accused at the scene. A couple had even followed the BMW as it had sped away after they had heard the gunshots. As the court days went on, Trevor was described as a pathetic sight, stuttering and nervous. Adam, on the other hand, came across as confident, strong and stubborn, conversation easily flowing from him. Although there were supposed to be 89 state witnesses, after hearing just a handful of the testimonies, including the sole survivor's testimony, the state prosecutor closed the state's case. On the 8th of March, which was ironically his birthday too, after spending 13 months in witness protection, which involved him not seeing any friends or family and not traveling anywhere, Quinton would finally sign papers to give him back his freedom. For the accused, their verdict was also coming sooner rather than later. In a strange twist though, which I still don't get, there was an insinuation by the legal teams to a mysterious third party, whom Trevor feared, thus explaining why he refused to testify in his own defense. His older brother would later affirm something along the same lines, stating that there was a lot more to the case than anyone knew. Many believed that the multiple phone calls that Adam had made during the massacre had something to do with another party being involved. Regardless, it was clear to the judge and everyone really that the pair did not intend to leave any survivors, especially given the fact that Adam, who lived right across the road from Sizzlers, had chosen to not wear balaclava throughout the entire event. The petrol, which would later be used to torture the victims, was something that was also bought from Inception, signaling intent. On the 11th of March 2004, both individuals were found guilty on nine counts of premeditated murder, or one count of attempted murder, and one count of armed robbery, 
all which carried the prescribed minimum sentence. The judge on the case would echo the sentiments of many, as he said, I'm afraid we've all been left with more questions than answers. Prior to the sentencing taking place, Adam, for the first time mind you, put out an appeal begging for forgiveness from the victim. He also apologized to his mother. His statement read, Your Honor, I would like to start by saying that I am truly sorry for what I have done. I regret that I allowed myself to be influenced by another person because what I did will always be with me. Every day I relive that fateful night and I wish I could turn back the clock. And I am now at the mercy of the court with regards to my life here on earth. I pray that God may guide you in your decision. No words can take away the pain I have caused. And again, I say I am sorry. Knowing words can never be enough to express my remorse. Yours in Christ. Adam Roy Faust. Trevor's sister would also testify in mitigation of his sentence. Instead of writing a letter to the court, Trevor wrote one to his family, asking for them to forgive him. He would go on to state, My life has changed and I ask that you pray for me. I love you and miss all of you. It is okay if you cry over me. I cry if I think about you. It is a form of prayer. The families of the victims, however, struggled, and some still do, to forgive the men who had robbed them of their loved ones. On the 16th of March 2004, the two men received nine life sentences each. In addition, Adam Roy Vost and Travel Basil Tace were also sentenced to 20 years for the attempted murder of Quentin Taylor, the only man to survive as well as 15 years for robbery. They each also received three years for illegal possession of a firearm and two years each for possession of ammunition. Trevor was also sentenced to an additional five years for the theft of two firearms. Judge Nathan Erasmus would state, You have made your bed, you must sleep in it. Nightmares and all. He would go on to describe the murders as callous and brutal, noting that, and I quote, Upon evaluating the facts and your conduct, the inference is inescapable. Your claims of remorse are not genuine, but rather akin to self-pity. His final note for the case that he requested to be kept in prison files was that both individuals be permanently removed from the community, as he did not wish either to ever receive parole. Although Quentin was satisfied with the verdict, the families of the loved ones would state that no decision would change the fact that their loved ones were gone. Quentin had stated, and I quote, It's over and closed. I can have fun and live life again. They've got life sentences. They'll never see the outside of their cells. I'm ecstatic. And that's what one would have believed, right? Well, that's not entirely the case. In 2016, Adam Wurst became eligible for parole. Yeah, you heard me correctly. It's due to a judgment that was made years ago, known as the Van Veek Judgment for Lifers. Basically, the Van Veek Judgment applies to the category of lifers sentenced before the 1st of October 2004. It requires them to serve at least 20 years before being considered for parole placements. The special remission of sentences and other credits further reduced those 20 years to 12 years and 4 months. Adam, however, luckily did not meet the requirements and was thus instructed by the Minister of Justice and Correctional Services to serve another 24 months, whilst undergoing psychotherapy with a psychologist. This was primarily to address his diagnosed disorder, namely schizoid personality disorder. That time was also allotted for victim 
tracing for the victim-offender dialogue to be able to take place. Parole hearings and victim-offender dialogues meant that unfortunately the families of the victims were drawn back into their trauma, with virtually little or no assistance from the government. Many of the victims' families only heard about the hearings through social media or the newspapers. Many, including Quinton, the sole survivor. The one person who survived the entire ordeal. When I say our system is broken, it's an understatement, to say the least. And just as that was being put to rest, almost 20 years later, the Sizzlers massacre made headlines again. Well, in March of 2021, it appeared that once again, Adam Vost was eligible to apply for parole. Adam believed that he had served enough time and claimed that if he was released, he would go and live with his mother in George, as he already had a job lined up. He was adamant that he would not commit another crime, stating that if he had wanted to kill, he would have done so in prison, but evidently the desire was apparently not there. Throughout his own parole sitting though, he demonstrated an incredible lack of insight and self-awareness into his own criminal behavior. Lee Fisser, the sister of Warren Fisser, started a petition on change.org in an attempt to prevent the mass murderer from getting parole. After the victims had spoken to him in person, it was evident that he was not rehabilitated and showed absolutely no remorse for his actions. The sole survivor of the mass murder would also face his perpetrator, with the support of the victims' families, in both person and electronically, of course. After that meeting, Quinton was assured that Adam still remained a danger to society and thus should not gain the opportunity to be released. To the relief of many, Adam once again did not obtain parole with the consideration being noted that he did not satisfy all the requirements at the time of consideration. These include engagements with the victims of his crimes as well as completion of rehabilitation programs. And Trevor, I've been speaking about Adam all this time but you may be wondering what about him? Well, Trevor actually passed away due to health complications a few years into his sentence in 2008. Prior to his passing though, the mother of Warren Fisser formed a relationship with him, forgiving him for his actions and even going as far as gifting him a Bible, Warren's Bible. She attempted to also interact with Adam, who on the other hand remained cold and unresponsive to any conversation that was instigated. As I always do in this series, let's look a little deeper into the minds behind the madness. I'll start with Trevor. Trevor Basiltais was his parents' fifth and second last child. He was born into a lower-income family where his mother was a caterer and his father a fisherman. After failing his early school years, he eventually finished grade 9. At that point, though, he left school due to financial reasons. During later years, he would be found by professional reports to be of a lower intelligence level. At the time of the crime, he had been living with his brother Charles as he had been estranged from his wife for over 20 years. Years. He also had three children. He was employed and worked in Seapoint as a taxi driver, mainly transporting ladies to and from work, escort agencies, and to hotels and clients. One of the psychiatrists who evaluated him, Dr. Larissa Paneri Peter, found no history of abuse or violence, nor any sign of homophobia. His sister, who later testified in court, would state that he was a helpful and loving person whom the children loved. She would say, my brother would never take a life. We are all still in shock. 
And so we move on to Adam. Adam Roy Vost was the oldest of three children. He spent his childhood in Durban and then later George, a smallish town in the Eastern Cape. Growing up, he would later describe his mother Celia as caring and supportive, but his father as ill-tempered and prone to administering physical punishment. As he grew up, he suffered some adjustment difficulties in his play school and would later be placed in a special school after being diagnosed with dyslexia. He would only go on to complete up until grade 10 though. As a child, Adam was bullied by other children and thus spent most of his time alone, confined to his room, where he would later become a big fan of fantasy and science fiction. Those who knew him would describe him as a quiet, somewhat introverted man who, despite his size, did not really stand out much. But he wasn't necessarily a loner as, at the time of the crime, he was actually engaged. He had met Adele Kaleski in 1996 in George. The two had dated for three years before he had proposed. They then moved to Cape Town and eventually they ended up living right opposite Sizzlers in Seapoint. Adam had found work at Key 4 in the waterfront and Adele began working as a private nurse. The pair were incredibly happy together. Mind you, right after the murders, Adam was in constant contact with Adele as she had left just two days prior to go visit her family in Potchefstroom for two weeks. She had seen a news piece on the massacre and she had still spoken to him about how shocking and terrible it was. And he would agree with her that it was a tragedy. Throughout all their conversations, he offered absolutely no inkling that he was involved in any way or form. He behaved in a manner no differently than the one she had grown used to. The only thing she mentioned that stood out for her was that he told her that he missed her, which was something that he didn't really do. Two weeks later though, when she had returned, she walked into him with a brand new haircut, glasses and a very nervous, stressed disposition. When the police would later tell her about all the events that had occurred, she was in disbelief. In the beginning, she chose to remain anonymous as she had received death threats and been mugged on multiple occasions. During interviews, she would describe Adam as loving, caring, soft-hearted with no aggression within him. Adam himself did not have a criminal record or any history of aggression prior to the murders. Adele would later state, and I quote, Everyone makes him out to be this monster, but that's not the person I know. He was always willing to help someone out. He'd give his last meal to someone rather than see them go hungry. End quote. In a later interview, though, she would confess, and I quote, I hate Adam for what he did. I thought I knew him, but after this, I don't think I know him at all. It is confusing to go from so much of love to so much of hatred. I prefer to think of him as being dead. It's less painful that way. Unable to truly reconcile after the shock of that discovery, Adele would later pass away in 2015. And she was yet another casualty in this case. A case in which so many families and lives were affected. From the 10 victims and their families to the families of the perpetrators, the scope of damage caused by the ruthless actions of Trevor and Adam is far-reaching. But why? 
Without previous histories of aggression or violence within each of them, what led them to commit such a shocking massacre? Although one should classify these men as mass murderers according to the standard definition, which basically states that a mass murderer is a person who kills numerous people during a specific and continuous period of time, do both of them really fit the profile? Well, Potentially. The thing is, there are so many variations of mass murderers, from family annihilators to spree killers. Some murderers plan their attacks, others are spontaneous. The factors that often remain in common though are the specific characteristics of the killers. So, Let's break it down. Generally, these types of killers are dissatisfied individuals with poor social skills and few friends. According to statistics, the majority are also male and not often clinically diagnosable as psychotic. Which completely sends the assumption that there's a mental disorder component right out the window. Just as not every serial killer can be diagnosed with a mental disorder, the same applies to mass murderers. And I'm pretty sure that's the thing that trips most people up. Because if there is a mental disorder component, we can say, okay, you are different to me. This is why you did it. But if there's not that present, then what truly makes you different from them? To most onlookers, it appears that Trevor was the more impressionable of the two, with Adam being the ringleader. Adam would also later be diagnosed with schizoid personality disorder. For those unaware, this is a type of condition where an individual showcases very little, if any, interest in forming and maintaining relationships with others. It is also not common for them to express a full range of emotions. This was something that was also reiterated in interviews with Adele. Adam would also admit later to the sister of one of his victims that he had the desire to kill and harm people for a long time. This disclosure, coupled with his diagnosis, as well as what we know about mass murderers, opens the pathway to further insight into his actions. As a young boy who was being bullied, getting the chance to be on the other side of that situation during the night of the massacre would have felt empowering for him. Turning from the victim into the aggressor is sometimes the way trauma is handled by some individuals. From being out of control and helpless to being confident and domineering, he was able to turn his fantasies of turning the tables into reality. In later conversation, he would state that he believed Sizzlers was trafficking minors. In his eyes, he therefore believed he was taking the criminals out and being the victor and hero in the situation. To this day, in regards to the Sizzlers massacre, the motive was never admitted to. Initially, it was thought to be a robbery that went wrong, but given the evidence that was provided during the trial, it soon became obvious that there was more to the story. There is the very distinct and real possibility of a homo prejudice existing. Basically, that any violent actions enacted towards the victims would have been amplified due to their status as belonging to the LGBTQ community. A community that more often than not find themselves bearing the brunt of abuse. Regardless though of whether the massacre was drug related, gang related or homophobic related, the outcome remains the same. Before I end the episode, I would like to mention that the sole survivor, Quentin Taylor, is in the process of writing a series of books detailing his experience before, during and after the traumatic event. The book is called A Life Redeemed, the story of 
the Sizzlers massacre survivor. He does need help though, as in 2017, he lost his home to the fires in Neisner, where he was working at the time. There is a crowdfunding page that has been opened to assist, and I will leave that information and link in the description should you feel moved to learn more about his story, donate, or assist in his journey. In the early hours of a summer's morning in 2003, so many lives were forever changed. The anguish and torment each man must have felt before their lights were extinguished is unimaginable and heartbreaking. Whilst we may never truly know the motives behind the murders, I hope that a small amount of comfort can be taken, knowing that some form of justice has been served and will hopefully continue to be served. Although it will never bring Stephanas, Aubrey, Sergio, Warren, Travis, Johan, Timothy, Gregory or Marius back, I hope that their memories will live on. And I hope that this episode has served to remind you that there can be light in the darkness and that through the sharing of these narratives, the memories of the departed can and will continue to forever exist. Until the next episode, stay safe, stay blessed, and stay the amazing human beings that I know each and every single one of you are. Bye!